Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host Alan Tolhurst. With me to discuss whether Rishi Sunak's reform of the Northern Ireland Protocol will be enough to break the deadlock and get the power-sharing executive back up and running at Stormont is our political editor Adam Payne, as well as the SDLP MP Claire Hanna, who represents Belfast South in the House of Commons, and Baroness Angela Smith, Labour peer and shadow leader in the House of Lords and a party spokesperson on Northern Ireland. So we'll start with you, Adam. Last week, the Prime Minister outlined his new Windsor framework. It feels almost already like a lifetime ago, but it was only 10 days ago. Explain for us just why this was such a big moment in this kind of drawn out saga of, of dealing with the Brexit in Northern Ireland. Thanks, Alan. It's good to be back on the podcast after a brief time away. We're doing Brexit, so we've got to get you back on if it's Brexit. Absolutely. So. Well, it does feel like a bit of a long time ago now, but it was early last week that the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen flew into the UK to have that press conference, that meeting as well, with Rishi Sunak, and they both signed off on this deal for Northern Ireland and reforming the protocol that we've been expecting for a number of weeks. It is a big moment, clearly, because it represents a big step towards repairing the relationship between the UK and the EU, which has been in a bad place for a while. As well, the government very much hopes that it will be enough to convince the Democratic Unionist Party that their concerns regarding Northern Ireland's place in the Union have been addressed and that they will agree eventually to return to power sharing in Northern Ireland. Now, the deal itself, I guess there are two core elements of it, really, to try and put it in layman's terms. Firstly, the number of checks carried out on stuff going from GB to NI is going to be reduced pretty dramatically. And they're doing that through the creation of a green lane and a red lane. In, a green, in the green lane, mm. you will have goods that are going from GB to NI, but staying in NI. And they will face very, very, very few checks. Then you'll have a red lane for stuff that's going to NI, but then continuing on to Republic of Ireland, which obviously is an EU member state. So that's kind of the the paperwork side of things when it comes to the role of european judges which was seen as potentially the thorniest issue the trickiest one to solve what's happening there and this is where it does get a bit complicated land so our 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 listeners will have to Mm. bear with me one of the dup's big gripes was that under the original protocol which is being revised any new eu law or regulation that's brought in in brussels will apply to Northern Ireland by virtue of its effective place in the single market. And Northern Irish politicians wouldn't have a way of potentially stopping that or saying they don't want that. Under this new mechanism that's been devised called the Stormont Break, uh, this, is, and this is where it gets really complicated, um, mm. MLAs, politicians in Northern Ireland, can use something called a petition of concern, which is when 30 of them out of the 90 agree, they sign a petition saying, we do not want this EU law to apply in Northern Ireland for these reasons, and they have to prove mm. their petition is significant, that it's not trivial, that they think it will be disruptive to everyday life in Northern Ireland. They lodge, they lodge that petition to the UK government, so Rishi Sunak in this case, he will relay that to the EU, and that EU law in question will not apply. Yeah. So, it, so, so we'll kind of come on to the whether it's going to work and, and how it might work in, in practicalities with it 
the executive back up just before I bring our guests in, just on the kind of uh, Westminster side of it, it's quite a gamble for Rishi Sunak. It was a, kind of a, a couple of false starts. He went to Belfast and, and kind of didn't square away the, the, the DUP who, who he needed to kind of get on side. And in, in the end, we were kind of hanging around waiting for this deal to be published. You know, it's a big gamble for him. Obviously, if he does kind of pull it off, then it's kind of a bit of a coup for him. But how much of a gamble do you think it would be if it turns out that this doesn't resolve this kind of what's been a fairly intractable problem over the past three years. We did have that moment, didn't we? Was it three weeks ago now? I mean, the guests may correct me here. When Rishi Sunak flew to Belfast, I think it was on a Thursday evening. And just the optics of that yeah. visit, the optics of that visit felt like he's going in to do the deal to get the necessary people on side. The plan was, Politics Home and other publications reported as, as much, the plan was the deal to be announced the following Monday and then to have the House of Commons statement on the Tuesday. That timetable got pushed back by about a week. Due to, it seems, the fact that the DUP's initial reaction wasn't hugely positive and yeah. some Tory Brexiteers didn't seem massively on board. Now, however, it looks like any Tory rebellion from the ERG bit of blast in the past there, the European Research Group, looks like it's going to be pretty modest. Some key Brexiteers have already declared support. David Davis, for example, Steve Baker, who's Northern Ireland minister, there were some rumours he might resign over this agreement, but he's very much on board with it. And perhaps we can talk about this element in a bit more depth, but the DUP, Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader, has put together, he's announced this week, this eight-person panel of uh, DUP unionist figures who are going to look at the Windsor framework and report back on what they think about it. And that will inform the party's verdict. We're expecting that in early April, perhaps. And the composition of that panel is very much people on the more more pragmatic sort of moderate wing of a DUP or within unionism. We'll, we'll come on to that a bit more about that, the kind of the, the timing of this kind of stuff. But I'll bring in Claire now. Obviously, what did you make of the firstly when initially the kind of the optics of the way that Rishinak announced all of this, and then the kind of response to it? How far do you think it's gone in resolving some of those issues, those practical issues, and the kind of the more difficult to describe it, kind of uh, the kind of the feelings issues of, of how things are going to get resolved in, in in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, in general, I think it's a sense of relief that we may be at the beginning of of the end of discussing this and, and Northern Ireland's been stuck in, in, in quite a loop where the protocol issues have dominated everything to, to the extent, of course, that the executive has been down for the last year. So a sense that we're moving on from that, a sense as well that it's a wee bit bigger than just us. You know, it has reset the EU-UK relationship. That means a better East-West relationship. And as we know, has impacts in, in the UK's relationship with the US and elsewhere and relief that stirring as you might call it from the ERG and others was going to be minimal in terms of the technical outcomes and and the changes I think it is more than people were expecting I should just restate that over 60% of voters supported parties that very much wanted to maintain the protocol albeit everybody was up for reducing friction and over 70% of people voted for parties who wanted to get back into Stormont so it Mm. had convulsed parts of, of Northern Ireland and it had, as I say, dominated the airwaves. But the protocol hasn't been something that has been at the top of people's everyday lives. So I think people are pleased that there's a lot there. We've been aware there are people who, who maybe haven't been interested in any deal 
that was achievable, any deal that protected our single market access, which is something that people want. But now we're glad to be getting on with achieving the potential gains of it. I mean, for my part, I've spent the last two years talking about the dual market access and the real win, the shot in the arm that could be for our very unproductive economy. But to do that, we need two things. We need um, stability. We need an executive uh, there doing skills and investment. But we also need a clean pitch to investors. And that's why people have some concerns about the storm and break. Northern Ireland has a bit of an addiction to veto. And I think there is a concern that we're inserting another layer of dysfunction there and that that is something that might deter investors. If we're saying, come to Northern Ireland, you'll be in the UK and the EU single markets. But by the way, you are subject to the whim of a party that hasn't been exceptionally rational on this issue over the last few years. <laughs> Angela, just on this, obviously, Richard Sinek was obviously very pleased with getting this deal over the line. But there's been some criticism, I suppose, that in a sense, this is fixing what was a, a problem created by Boris Johnson's not quite so oven ready deal on Brexit. And this essentially is, is, a, is a deal that perhaps, you know, fixes some of those problems that they, they created. Would you think Richard Sinek deserves credit on this? And, and should it have been resolved much sooner and, and gone much further? Yes, I think the Prime Minister does deserve some credit, but that doesn't detract from the fact this could have been done much, much sooner. The time and energy that's been wasted on the protocol bill to get rid of the protocol, which Claire's had in the House of Commons, we've had in the House of Lords, all that time and energy could have been spent on trying to get a better solution by negotiation and debate. And that's what's happened at the end of the day. I've been very critical that these debates were never taking place in Northern Ireland. There weren't people from Northern Ireland engaged. It was the government in the EU and the government weren't listening to Northern Ireland. When I was over in Belfast in January with Keir Starmer and Peter Kyle, what businesses were saying to us, which is exactly what Claire has just said, was they didn't want to get rid of the protocol, but they all had ideas of how it could be improved, how it could be tweaked, how negotiations could make a difference from them. But... There are two sides we've been discussing. There's the practical side that makes it easier for business, which should always have taken place in the very beginning, to try and get those changes that were needed. And then you've got the political side. Is it enough for the DUP? Well, they're complaining about a democratic deficit on EU regulations. The biggest democratic deficit for Northern Ireland is not having the executive up and running and not having the assembly up and running. So yes, this was a problem of the government's own making, All kinds of promises were given to Northern Ireland, which were found not to be true. You know, I remember Boris Johnson waving his arms around and saying, if you get anyone to interfere in the form, give them them my phone number. I'll tell them it's nonsense. It wasn't nonsense. Yeah, I think he he said, he said, throw them in the bin. He got a a, a party conference. He told the DUP and and Northern Ireland to throw any customs documents in the bin if they got them. I think there was huge neglect of Northern Ireland in the debate around Brexit in the first place and the debate around the protocol and what it would deliver. Now I think there's practical discussions taking place to try and make amends to that and make it work better in the interests of Northern Ireland and the UK as a whole. So I do give Prime Minister the credit for doing that, but I really can't forget how he was part of those that were telling us before that the protocol was going to save the Good Friday Agreement. Now they're saying they've got to get rid of it, but it's the right thing that's been done now. It does smooth the way. If the DUP are serious about wanting to be part of the Assembly and Executive in Northern Ireland, then this is the deal. There's nothing else to be gained from the EU. Yeah. This is it now. Yeah. I hope that, and I'm encouraged by the panel they've got together, actually. I think there's some serious people there, and I hope they recognise, as Claire said, the majority of people 
want their own institutions up and running looking at these issues. Yeah, Claire, just on that, I mean, we talk about the, the DUP, it says, you know, you're part of one of the five parties in Northern Ireland that's part of the, the Assembly. You know, in a sense, just too much rest on, on the DUP sometimes. And, and should, in a sense, the government almost sort of call their bluff, do you think, on this, given that, as Angela says, they've got something out of the EU. They've got movement, more movement than perhaps a lot of us thought here in Westminster. You know, should perhaps the government call the DUP's bluff and say, look, you know, this is, this is what's happening now. We need to get the, the executive back up and running with this deal. Well, I think there is definitely a sense here that there has been an outsize voice given to the objections in this, including voices of really uh, extremists on a lot that that were creating a, a kind of an inorganic response and anger within communities. And there is a frustration that it has been allowed to kind of displace every other debate and, and, and every other issue. And I think there is a sense that this is the deal, you know, not in a casual take it or leave it sort of a way but there is a growing consensus that if the DUP don't take this deal and come back in and I happen to think they will and to be fair I think there are people within the DUP that are working quite hard to do that because they know really there's nowhere else to go particularly if there isn't a big part of the last few years has been forces to the right in the Conservative Party dragging the DUP further even than they wish to go and if that rebellion isn't there if they have nowhere to go so yes I think I think that old cliche of peace process times that the, the train is leaving the station has been used a lot that this will be in place and that if they don't come back in then we need to move on to a conversation about Stormont reform mm. and about changing context where a party with about 25% of the vote can't hold back governance and, and progress on every other issue. Yeah, Adam, I was, was going to come on to that actually now. The, the government has sort of hinted, on, you know, sort of a slight threat that, you know, that reform could be made to the way that power sharing is done. Obviously, we've got not got an executive the past year. There was three years between 2017 and 2020. Actually going back, I think there was about a five-year stretch in the 2000s when there wasn't a, a power sharing, when devolution was was paused. You know, how serious do you think that threat was, Adam? And, and do you think, you know, sort of 25 years on from Good Friday, is it now the time perhaps to be widely looking at kind of how power sharing works in Northern Ireland? Yes, but before I address that very easy question, Alan, I, I, I saw Claire's cat for a second. Yeah, we had an extra, we had an extra <laughs> guest on the podcast. It, looked, it was very welcome, I've got to say. It's, it's a shame that our listeners could, could, not, could not see this, but it, very, very excellent. Yes, a few weeks ago, rather mysteriously, a quote was doing the rounds attributed to, a, to someone close to Rishi Sunak, familiar with his thinking, saying that if the DUP doesn't, accept what he agrees with the EU, that the government could look at reforming power-sharing rules in Northern Ireland, could, could look at changing the, the setup and, and how parties work together to form a government. Now, that hasn't been said publicly. And whenever I've, you know, I've asked the PM spokesperson whether the government would look at doing that, and publicly it's always been a pretty um, flat-out rejection. But the fact that Clearly, someone behind the scenes decided to, to put that quote, that suggestion about, perhaps as a threat to the DUP. Because as things stand, Alan, the way the power sharing arrangements are created, let's take Alliance, right? Alliance are the third biggest party in Northern Ireland, but they describe themselves as um, non-affiliated. They don't describe themselves as a unionist or nationalist 
party, if they were to come second a uh, future election, which looks like it, you know, possible in the in the next few decades, it would be very difficult for them to take up the post of deputy first minister. Not impossible, but very difficult because as things stand, it's the second largest delegation which takes up that role. So there has been suggestions that to mark the 25th year anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, should we have a conversation about modernising power sharing arrangements in Northern Ireland, updating them to reflect what's happened in the Northern Irish political party system, in society. But at the same time, Alan, you've got to be careful with that because if it looks like the government is doing that to get the DUP on board, the DUP clearly aren't going to take kindly to that. No. But, but I don't think it's going to come to that, at least not at least not now. I think, as Claire says, it looks like the DUP is heading in, in, a, in a direction whereby it does accept the Windsor framework and gets back into power sharing. But mm. I think, as Claire touched upon earlier, there is a concern among other parties that, that the storm and break could essentially amount to a unionist veto yeah. and they could use it to quite disruptive effect. Yeah. Angela, you were a, a minister in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland office actually during that period, wasn't there, when there was when there was no executive in the two, in the 2000s. Explain to us what it's what it means, and I suppose, and, and I'll come back to, to Claire about what it's meant, obviously, the past few years, not having an executive and, and why it's so important that this power sharing does get back up and running. It's interesting because the situation now is slightly different than it was under direct rule. And you know, legislation going through that civil servants can make decisions in Northern Ireland was this extraordinary place to be. Yeah. For us, we had a, a team of four of us who were very committed to the work we did, but we weren't residents of Northern Ireland. We were there you know, half the week and in our own constituencies the rest of the week. Didn't we? we didn't care about what we did, but that is a democratic deficit, however you do it if the institutions aren't up and running. I think there's a frustration in government, and if the DUP doesn't get the assembly and the institutions up and running again, that frustration will increase. But I suspect the greater frustration will be in Northern Ireland, from the people of Northern Ireland. Everybody I spoke to back in January was desperate for the institutions to get up and running again. And I think the DUP is flying in the face, not of just the opinion of other political parties, but of their own voters. So whilst they may retain the support of their voters, there is a frustration there that is very evident. So it is strange when you have elected representatives who will always tell you how much they want to do their job, but aren't doing it because they can't be there. So they can help constituents, but they can't, they're not in Stormont, they're not dealing with legislation. And our visit to Stormont, where we were meeting all the political parties, and Claire will take, because Claire, we met that um, those couple of days as well, um, the staff in Stormont were so pleased to see us because something was happening there. There was <laughs> right. a buzz about the place. It was lively. It wasn't empty and deserted and people turned up for lunch. So I think there's huge frustration, and Claire will know this better than me and give better examples, of people of Northern Ireland who are frustrated that their assembly is not up and running again and that their representatives aren't in the assembly and the executive. Mm. Claire, just on that, obviously, the past few years as I said there's that period between 2017 and 2020 and and, in the past year there's been lots of things there's abortion provision post-pandemic and stuff where there hasn't been that executive place there hasn't been that government in place just explain why it's so important to to get it back up and running and and also just from your point of view what you think are the key things that need to happen for that executive to be back up and running 
Yeah, I mean, plan A is definitely the executive back up and running and as much consensus as we can find in this because nobody's denying, you know, the symbolic value and the disruption of Brexit and, and sort of the sense of injury to ordinary unionists. There is a frustration at the DUP because it was they who kind of walked us into this situation and voted against all the better alternatives. But as Angela has touched on, there's just it's just a degradation of policy decisions in absolutely every area. I mean, the health service in North than Ireland genuinely is in a very ter- is in a terrible place. I mean, yeah. the waiting lists are bad in, in in Britain, but they are in many cases ten and more times worse. And I mean, things like, for example, the energy support payments that would have reached you uh, before Christmas, they didn't roll out here until um, February because of the, the governance delays. But really, overall, there's a damage in people's belief in politics and uh, in in democratic processes and their belief in devolution and, and that we can. And a sense of and a sense of hopelessness. So I think um, getting that kind of all of us suspending our disbelief one more time um, is an assembly that has been down forty percent of the time since the Good Friday Agreement. So people people are losing faith in it. So I think even if we do get back, and as I say, that's what what I hope happens. There is a conversation to be had about incentivizing compromise because the coalition structures as they are written now, and um, they were suitable 25 years ago, but basically they don't incentivize compromise. The big two parties know that if they get their vote out, they can block government and they can block everything and they can keep things on their terms. And there doesn't appear to be a consequence either electorally or in terms of of, of of resource. No. I think building on that as well, if you think back to the Good Friday Agreement, the hope and the optimism and the enthusiasm during that time, you know, it's the people of Northern Ireland that agreed the Good Friday Agreement. It wasn't just the political parties, it was voted on. And if you think back now, look now, is there that same optimism and enthusiasm? No. So I think getting the institutions up and running again, and the pressure is on the DUP here to bring back that... I suppose the attitude, the mood um, in Northern Ireland at that time, there's a real opportunity for the 25th anniversary. Mm. Adam, both of our guests just talked today about the this anniversary that's coming up. Just explain to us kind of the the significance of that. And there's also talk about Joe Biden, the American president coming over and whether getting this, getting the executive back up and running, getting the protocol deal done is kind of integral for all those kind of things to take place and what it would mean, I suppose, if this gets pushed back, if we have to go to a further election and that sort of stuff in, in Northern Ireland. You know, I, I don't need to point out the, the importance of the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. It's, it's going to be a big event in this year's political calendar. Obviously, Rishi would expect Rishi Sunak to be in Belfast for that, as well as European leaders. And you've talked about the prospect of a Joe Biden visit. As far as I'm aware, the US is ready to commit a lot of investment in, in, in into the region off, off the back of this Windsor framework. And there has been questions regarding, will the president of the US come over here if Stormont is, isn't up and running? That's been a sort of a question hanging over the um, anniversary as, as it approaches. I mean, and for Rishi Sunak as well, Alan, I think it's just worth, you know, if Rishi Sunak does lose the next election, which right now looks like the most likely outcome. But as we know, the next election's a long time away. A lot can happen. The Tories still think they can do it. Even if his only real achievement is the Windsor framework and bringing government back to Northern Ireland, that's not a bad legacy, really, given you know that the region has been without a fully functioning executive for a long time. 
I mean, I, I think it'd be interesting to hear Claire's reflections on that, how it would sort of rank as an achievement. No, not, not, not that how it reflects on Rishi Sunak's CV is the most important element of this. <laughs> I think it has been a, a vindication for acting like an adult, essentially, and, and acting like a, a like a... A partner. I don't think we can ignore, and I must say, I think you know our engagements with Rishi Sunak have been have been positive. We can't ignore that the Conservative Party created this problem and made it worse at numerous times. Like I say, July twenty one, when the DUP were trying to move back to to supporting the protocol, Frost pulled them back by inserting unmeetable red lines around things like uh, the ECJ. So yes, it, it definitely is a positive. I, I mean, I know, I think Steve Baker said it was an, an achievement on par with the Good Friday Agreement. Respectfully, it wasn't. Uh, and as I say, we are glad to see things um, repaired, but, but Brexit has been an unbearable and unbelievable rupture in Northern Ireland over the last seven years. It has inserted all the things the agreement helped us to deal with, you know, things like sovereignty and identity and borders and things that were divisive and we had agreed a framework to not have to talk about them all the time since 2016 we have talked about them all day every day and it has had a very very real polarizing uh, effect and that didn't need to happen and many people cautioned about the impact that that would have on northern ireland so we're we're glad, we're glad to see it but i suppose many people will say that the same government that fixed it are the ones who very much mangled it in the first place i suppose your question adam in some ways is do you get credit for clearing up your own mess exactly. <laughs> and in some ways you do but it is this you know we have been saying the only ways would ever be resolved is by negotiations and discussions um, we're glad they took that advice eventually but it could have been done a lot sooner yes just before we wrap up angela obviously as, as, as claire mentioned there there's been a lot of talk about kind of getting past this and, I, and there's been lots of different solutions that you know i don't want to trigger adam about talking about malt house compromises and, and max facts and all, all that kind of stuff but you know i just wonder if, if the situation we are now you know essentially is it sort of a weariness that's led to this point and, if, and effectively is this kind of the least worst option you know i think a lot of people just kind of want the things to be to be over and essentially you talk about sunak getting credit for clearing up a mess is it is is, is he getting credit essentially for for doing something that allows people just to think right we're finally sort of moving past this and, and are we finally i know i ask this question often when we do we talk about brexit are we finally going to be done with this element of brexit do you think well, in terms of if you talk to people who are involved in negotiations on trade with the EU, they go on year after year and they're never resolved because there's always ongoing negotiations. And Brexit has always made that harder for us and it will make it harder for Northern Ireland. I think the problem for the government, there was a frustration because they couldn't go around saying we got Brexit done because they hadn't because there was outstanding unresolved well, they, they, they gave it a try. They gave it a good go. <laughs> they gave it a good go, but until they got the protocol resolved, they haven't got Brexit done because this is outstanding. And it's been a huge divisive issue in Northern Ireland. It's been very divisive in politics generally. I do give credit for finally getting around the table and having serious discussions rather than the sort of hardball thing is, oh, if we don't get everything we want, we're taking our ball away and unilaterally breaking an international treaty that we signed. The consequences for the UK on that would have been absolutely appalling worldwide. There would have been consequences. So the right thing has been done. There is a weariness about it because people were misled. They were told these issues wouldn't arise. They were told it would be resolved and it wasn't. And I think there's right, there's a weariness but hopefully this will solve many of the practical issues, not all of them. There's still the work to be done on that, like veterinary agreement, for example. It hasn't yet solved the political issues, 
but that's in the hands of the DUP. And I think if it fails to do that, the government will feel, I think, quite aggrieved how far they've moved and not got an agreement for the DUP. But I remain optimistic. I'm, not, I'm in politics. Well, I've got to be optimistic, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a good, good a place to end it as anything on, on a bit of optimism, I suppose. Uh... That's all we've got time for this week. But you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com. And keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Claire Hannah and Baroness Angela Smith, and to my colleague, Adam Payne. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>